This morning is Sunday. It is uh, March 14, 2010. Congratulations on making it on time. Uh, I know it's difficult when we spring forward. Uh, I feel like uh, an hour or two of sleep was stolen from me, and yet I'm alive inside. Uh, I just came from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I got to visit with the people that comprise our board. They are truly excited in the spirit about what's going on here. And I want to tell you, if you don't go to our website and listen to messages when you miss them, or you don't subscribe to the podcast, you're missing out because people that never come to our church around the world, especially the third world of Louisiana, <laughs> sorry, Liz, they, uh, they're listening and they're quoting our messages to us when, uh, when I sat down, somebody started talking to me about Luke 14. And I said, hey, did you hear from God? He goes, no, I got your podcast. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's exciting. And I just want to tell you, it's encouraging to me. It lets us know we're on the right track. When other believers that are excited and sacrificial about their faith are spurred on by something that you're doing, you know you're on the right track. When the masses that are not in Christ all embrace your message and tell you how wonderful you are, and lift you up really high, you're probably way off track. We, we need to know something. The gospel in its very heart is at war with our flesh. And it will carve it right away. And it is difficult. That is the gospel. The gospel has never been easy. It has never been something that every single person in the world would embrace or agree with. The gospel is not like that. It's the kind that you have to have a special eye-opening experience with the Lord to embrace. It's the kind that only a few find in love. Our message this morning is going to be about accumulation and distribution. So if you take notes, that would be what you'd write at the top. Come with me to Matthew 10. Tell me when you're there. One of you. A couple of you. Matthew 10, I want you to hear a verse. I want to remind you of the message that you saw before the worship service. The woman, Jackie Pullinger, 1966, went to the foreign mission fields with $100 in her pocket. She said that the gospel brings life to those, I'm sorry, the gospel always brings life to the receiver and death to the giver. I believe that she is definitely on to something. There is something innate about us needing to decrease so that Jesus can increase in our lives. The Bible is full of stories of men who were robbed of their own strength so that they could be strong for the Lord. Men who, when they had their eyes, couldn't see right, but after their eyes had been put out and they were chained in the temple to foreign gods, suddenly saw what God was trying to show them. The gospel does not depend upon our natural efforts. It does not depend upon our programs, our buses, our marketing campaigns. The gospel depends upon your willingness to lay down your will and pick up his. And it is an easy thing to say Jesus is Lord, but it is a very difficult thing to demonstrate it in your life, and it requires that you die daily. I want you to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 10:24. A student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. In two weeks, 
I will be in Germany. In German, when you say that you are a Christian, there is no such word. You say, I am Christ. <laughs> How about that? There is no such concept as you are just followers. You either are Christ or you are not Christ. Now, in Germany, the state has corrupted this to the point where everybody who is German believes they are Christ, at least for the most part. But the origins of this in the language are something that's beautiful. If we are like our master, then we are his students. And you must expect that if you are going to be like him, you will be treated like him. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Anytime you see in the NIV the words, how much more? This belies something that exists in the original language that has not made it to us. How much more indicates a Hebraic form of teaching called Calvay Comer. And what it means is, this is a small thing, and this is a much bigger, more weighty thing. These are the teachings where Jesus says something like, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, because it would be better for you to enter into life with only one eye than to have both and go to hell. These teachings that are shocking to our senses. Here, he says, how much more the members of his household. If they consider Jesus something to be scorned and ridiculed, don't be surprised if you were scorned and ridiculed. If they considered it a light thing to scorn and ridicule him, how much more you who are wrought with flaws, just like me. He had none, and he was scorned and ridiculed. How much comfort then should we seek? How much favor, how much of our reputation should we invest in? Knowing that you will be treated like your master if you indeed show yourself to be his student. I want to change your expectation level. When you go to work, you should not expect everyone there to hug you, kiss you, and treat you like the body of Christ. You shouldn't expect that. You should instead expect that the spirit in them hates the spirit in you. That those who are filled with the spirit of disobedience hate those who are filled with the spirit of obedience. And yet, you can't return that. You love those who treat you like enemies. You look at them with an opportunity to lay down your life that they might receive life. I want to encourage you to change your expectation of your relatives. Those that you know are outside of Christ, quit expecting sinners to act like saints. Instead, acknowledge what they are. Look for sinful actions to come from sinners. And adjust your heart that your life can be laid down at Thanksgiving tables. It can be laid down in workplaces. It can be laid down in the grocery store for the sinner that stands before you that he might have a chance to be ransomed from his way of life. But when you expect them to act a certain way, you're disappointed when they don't. You're offended when they don't, and your life becomes scandalized. I'm sad to say that I know many Christians are not nearly as joyful as their lost counterparts at work, and when you ask why, they describe circumstances. Our Lord is above circumstances, and your faith must be above circumstances too. In fact, he spoke to the very winds and stilled them. And if your joy, if your disposition, if your shalom, your peace, your trust in Yahweh God is dependent upon circumstances, you have no hope. Because the circumstances are going to change. 
and our present blessing may not endure. We need a heart that cries out, even if there are no crops and no cattle can I find, I will rejoice in a hilarious leaping way before my God. This is a witness to the world that you are saving, that you are being saved, and they are perishing. It is a witness, but there is no witness when you return like for like. I remembered every reason that I didn't want to live in a certain area of the world here recently. I walked into a convenience store and the teller yelled at me. That's strange, isn't it? I mean, usually the customer is treated with a certain level of respect. I had cowboy boots on and pulled up in a certain kind of vehicle, and it probably had some negative associations for the fellow. He yelled at me. My very first thought was not a holy one. Can you relate to that at all? Yes. My flesh does not enjoy that. No. I thought about every reason that this was unjustified, every reason that I may be being charged for the sin of others, every reason that this was wrong, and I wanted to retaliate. To be like my master. And when they nailed his body to a tree and tore the flesh from his back, he still said, Forgive it. Why do we hold on to offenses and grudges, especially of lost people? Let's turn to Matthew 20. See, you just work your way to the right in the Bible. Got two New Testament scriptures in a row. You ought to be proud of it. Matthew 20, look at verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your Slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to ask you, is your life about accumulating favor, the respect of others, the admiration of your peers? Or is it about laying down your life that others might be saved? <laughs> what do you think it means when the word says, Work as unto the Lord. What do you think that means? One of the problems with us saints is that the word of God has been circulated amongst us so much that we become numb to it. We forget. In fact, when I began reading this passage in your mind, did you race ahead because you already knew what it said? See, I do that. I'm assuming that some of you know what this says already. And you can miss the point. We are supposed to be like our master, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. Wow. You think that it's something just to witness to someone. I say that the best witness that you can have is let them thoroughly offend you, stomp on your feelings, spit on you, and love them anyway. I say it's not enough to say Jesus loves you. You must demonstrate your love for them. I say, if you are really his disciple, you will act like he acts. You will walk as he walked. I said, but that is so difficult. I know not everybody will do it. Only a few will find it. Very difficult. There is something in us that wants to achieve a level of authority, to achieve a level of respect, to be able to exert levels of control in people's lives. 
In fact, pastors are the worst at this. We will label somebody rebellious that simply has a different opinion. The word doesn't say that their opinion is wrong. You haven't heard from God that it is wrong. You just don't really like it. And so before you know it, you're kind of pushing them to the outside of your fellowship. You're treating them differently. And you may even slip with somebody and say, you know, I don't know. They just got kind of a rebellious thing about them. This is not giving your life as a ransom for people. There is room for expression of opinion. There is room for a diversity of thought. It makes the body of Christ beautiful, but there is something in us that wants to control rather than serve. And it showed up with these men in the last few weeks of Jesus' life. In fact, on the very last day of his life. And they had been taught by him for three and a half years. So don't tell me you are any more devoid of it than I am. The real test is not when people are treating you well of your Christian faith. It's when they are not treating you well. Let me ask you, how are you doing with that? Let's take a blind survey. If all of your co-workers were paraded before the camera that is on reality television in that little room where they get to talk about your behavior and you can't hear them, what would it say? Come on, saints. It's time to tighten up. We're living in the midst of unimaginable blessing, both from the heavens and in a natural standpoint. If you don't think you're rich, if you didn't walk here today, you were rich. You're part of the 8% of the world that has an automobile. If you had some clean water today, understand you are rich because most of the world doesn't have clean water. In fact, the very clothes that are on your backs declare you are rich. You are living in the midst of unimaginable wealth and blessing on every side. And let me ask you, are you happy more hours of the day than sad? We better begin to speak to our soul, our mind, will, and emotions, and get this in order. People ought to be drawn to our lives like a moth to a flame. You shouldn't have to go track somebody down and trap them into a conversation about Jesus. Are you aware that you're a sinner completely morally bankrupt and the dude's waiting to get off the elevator? (laughs) You should live a life that makes them say, golly, when the layoff came, I felt like I was going to sink and die. I couldn't believe that you offered me your last paycheck. I couldn't believe that you gave that person your car. I couldn't believe that when everybody else was sure we wouldn't make it, you confidently stood with a smile on your face and were generous and said, God will support me. This is the witness of Christ. The witness of Christ is not your bumper sticker. It is not the ridiculous Christian witness wear that we all wear. I mean, I love those things. That is not the witness of Christ. The witness of Christ is the blessing to your attitude in the midst of adversity. So that you can lay down your life even to the point of being killed on a cross and love the people that are around you. Turn with me to John 13. recently had a conversation with someone about waiting to be given ministry in this church. You know, I was never given ministry. Nobody ever said, look, here is a business card, there is a church, there is a pulpit, go stand up and preach. 
Ministry is what flows out of the normal day-to-day activities of my life. I was never told to go witness. I was never given a quota of people to see born again or spirit-filled. It is the normal activities of people who are like Jesus. Saints, look at your lives. If you have not seen anybody come to the Lord in the last five years, what does that say about your life? It's just not my calling? Really? How do you justify that stand in the Word? If you're a spirit-filled, on-fire believer, but are not sharing that testimony with all of the brothers around us that have accepted about a quarter of the message, what does that say about your life? So, Eric, I'm just not as vocal as you. It's not about you being like me. It's about you being like your master. You tell me which of his blessings did he hide from the world? Which of his feelings did he exalt above the need to see people born again? To which person did he cower so that he would have their favor or their approval? It doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. Saints, the body of Christ must be like the master. John 13, 1. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. This word full extent in Greek is telos, T-E-L-O-S. It means the culmination of all that he was aiming at, the fullness of. Sometimes it's translated the end as in the thing that you have been journeying towards. And what was the full extent of his love? It starts down and around the 12th verse. When he had finished washing their feet, the full extent of his love began with a foot-washing attitude. An attitude that took those who were rightfully beneath him and put their needs above him. Let me ask you, how embarrassing would it be to have Jesus wash your feet his last day on the planet? How embarrassing would that be? To the point where people said, no, 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 look, don't. You know why? It was Peter's job to do it. He should have done that. But the body of Christ is always standing to wait for Jesus to do what you have already been called to do. Lord, open their eyes. Lord, witness to them. Lord, change their heart. Lord, do this. Lord, cast that out. Lord, make them well. Lord, Lord, Lord. You are his hands and his feet. His spirit is deposited in you so that you will act like him. He actually said you would do greater things than he did. Which of us wants to lay claim to having achieved that? And yet the Lord said it. You think something's wrong with his ability to empower us or something wrong with our ability to yield to it? I'm actually very worried for us. Worried as a nation. Worried as a nation of believers. And even worried on a congregational level as small as we are. I'm worried that our many blessings and our many comforts around us have distracted us from the point I'm worried that we get so invested in our cars and our gardens and our clothes and making a living and all of those things that we miss the point. We get so caught up in the drama that goes around us at work that he said and she said and they don't and he will that we miss the point. You are here to give your life 
as a ransom for them. And they only see it in the moments that you sacrificially lay down your life. In this regard, you need to rejoice when somebody insults you. Not just because the glory of God rests on your shoulder, but it is a chance for them to see that you are different. I hate that most of these stories are a long time ago in my life. I seek to renew my faith, to become stronger tomorrow than I was last year. But there was a time in my life when a man hit me with a hole. Doesn't matter. He hit me with something because I was smiling at him and told him I loved him. And yet yesterday, standing in a convenience store because someone yelled at me, I would have liked to have hit him. Every day you must circumcise your flesh. Every day you must carve away from your heart all of those things that war with your ability to lay your life down. It's difficult in a little church. Everybody's in everybody's business. We all know what is going on. You might seek to avoid that. Go hide in a crowd. I mean, where you can just have a fresh start. There is no fresh start that works that way. The fresh start is when the body of Christ acts like the body of Christ, and they know exactly who you are and love you anyway. If the people around you don't like you now, what makes you think that going to a new group is going to make them like you? How about that? I know what that kind of thinking produces. I was thrown out of school after school after school, convinced the problem was with the school. Understanding that what's wrong with your life is you and not the circumstances around you, not the people around you. That when your goal is to accumulate, you can be disappointed constantly. When your goal is to distribute the good things God has given you, you can never be disappointed. When you give your life away, you actually find life. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? Yeah, Jesus, looks like you washed my feet. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Some countries, like Russia, for instance, wash each other's feet before every communion. Really, Westerners don't like it very much. It feels gross to us. It feels like it's not hygiene, right? How strange that that custom would strike us as odd. How strange that that custom would be a little bit repulsive to us. One missionary sent to Russia said, oh God, here they come. Get the, get the deodorant out. Actually came out of his mouth. You say, shame on him. 
do you walk away from opportunities to wash other people's feet? Opportunities, when they wrong you, when they're ugly to you, or maybe they just don't acknowledge how wonderful you are. Do you walk away from the opportunity to wash their feet? Please don't forget there was a devil in this room. He washed his feet. There was a man who would betray him three times in one day in this room. He washed his feet. There was a man in this room who said, I will not believe unless I put my finger in the hole where he was crucified. And he washed his feet. There were people in this room just like you, just like me. Let me ask you, did he wash your feet? You will be blessed when you go and do the same. Not when you acknowledge that him doing it was right. Not when you simply say, yes, this is a good story and I can quote it. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to know that talkative... The man talkative in the book, the one who can talk about everything that has to do with the word and with God, and he can speak upon it as a competent conversant, but had no fruit on his tree. That is the church. That is the church, abounding in knowledge and woefully short on deeds. For that reason, since the time we started here, I'm trying to encourage an attitude that performs out there the things that you practice in here. An attitude that places deed over creed. An attitude that says a little less talk, a whole lot more walk. Unfortunately, even those axioms become just one more thing that we know and forget to do. It can't be this way, saints. It can't be this way. Turn with me to John 10. Now, stay in John 13. We're so close to this one. John 13, let's look at 37. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. How many of you have made that pledge? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? You know what happens with Peter. I want to submit to you that the same question is before you every day. We have pledged already to lay down our lives for him. To do whatever it takes to see his kingdom advance. To give up everything and follow him. And yet, when confronted with personal sacrifice, what do you do? How many of us tithe, sing, read, do all of those things so that we can feel comforted as if we're doing what we should do? The heart of the gospel is not about finding the minimum that you should do. It is about giving up everything to be his disciple. So, well, what does that mean? What is the balance in this? How do we practically walk this out? You do it with fear and trembling, submitting everything that you have to him at all times. First of all, your attitude. There is such pressure upon people who stand behind these ridiculous boxes right here that we call pulpits and invest with all kind of authority and power. I want to tell you, it's just wood. There's nothing in particularly special about this. You say, but the anointed stand there and speak. Well, what does that make you? Your seats are every bit as anointed as this pulpit because you sit in them. Every day we have a choice to lay down our lives or deny him. Every day. The pressure that is upon people who stand behind these things is to soften the difficult words of Jesus. We say things like, you simply must be willing to. Or, this was about his unique situation. The problem that he had doesn't really apply to you. Who gave me the right to tell you that? 
Did God speak to me and tell me that John 14 doesn't apply to Maria? Or Luke 14 doesn't? Did he tell me that Darren and Andrew are exempt from this word? They simply must be willing? Where are they supposed to find that assurance? From being in a relationship with the King of Kings. They're supposed to find out his will for their lives by seeking his face daily. Not seeking a pulpit's approval. Come on now, if you hadn't shed some tears over difficult things Jesus has asked of you, you probably are not very close to him. You may have gotten into what could only be described as a rut. Well, Jesus started with me this way. This is what I know he told me to do. So, this is what I'm always going to do. And you don't realize that you're in a giant grave. Because what the Lord actually calls you to do is to walk in an ever-increasing, narrowing way. To circumcise your heart daily. To be crucified daily. To be filled with his power daily. And friends, that never really gets easy for the flesh. Never. But what we look to do is insulate ourselves. Say, okay, now I can coast. Now it's all okay. Is there still work to be done? What does the proverb say about a son who sleeps during the harvest? That some of you are so hard. And I don't mean to morph over into this strange travailing attitude that says, you are never quite good enough. Cry a little more. Weep a little more. I don't believe it. I believe that the Lord is pleased with you when you are simply trying to do what he tells you to. Period. I don't think you need to sit here for four hours and cry to him. In fact, sometimes it makes me a little ill when people do that. He has already said you are his son. What more good things could he say about you? I refuse to even call you sinners because he calls you saints. I am not talking about an attitude that never measures up. I'm simply talking about an attitude that every day does whatever it takes to be obedient and that refuses to sit in the same sin day after day. Take a look at your lives in the last few years. If you find yourself going around the same mountain over and over and over, you might need to consider that something is wrong. But we usually don't. We continue to blame the mountain, to blame the other travelers. There might need to be a course correction that is made. My favorite scripture lately has been taught to me by the Piro children. He who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> stupid. Can you believe that the Bible says that? Ignoramus. Okay, it doesn't say that I said that. <coughs> it's because we condemn ourselves to repeat the same thing with the same unhappy results. Let's let God intervene. Let's look at him and say, Lord, what is it that you want out of my life now? Start with when you wake up in the morning. Begin to examine your day. You leave in the house hurried, rushed, angry, kicking the dog on the way out the door. Do something different. When you get to work, are people happy to see you? Do they go hide behind your desk until, or hide behind their desk until you walk by? Are you known everywhere as somebody that's difficult to talk to and work with? I want to give you a little insight. This is not the life that God is shooting for. Not for any one of you. I don't care what the personality tests say about the way that the world should relate to you. The Word of God says that you must deny yourself daily. Daily. Turn with me to John 10. Y'all 
bored with me already? John 10, let's look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Let's be very clear. Jesus knows you. He loves you anyway, and he still knows you. You ever have those honeymoon periods with friends? Or actual honeymoons in some cases. And you uh, you work to present everything just right. I mean, rarely is it the first week of somebody's marriage and they leave the bathroom door open, right? And yet, in the 20th year of marriage, that might occur. I want you to know something. Jesus knows you. He knows you. He knows what motivates the, the thoughts in your heart. He knows that. Don't think that there will ever be a chance that your motives will not be displayed on that day before the whole world. Today is the time to get it right. Today is the time to get it right. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Not Mormons, I promise. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I want to submit to you this morning the idea that nobody will force you to live like Christ, not even Christ. The Holy Spirit will not make you do anything. Instead, He is there providing the power for you to do what you could never do on your own if you want that. You have a choice before you. And the Father loves those who lay down their lives. You are called to be just like your Master. This means that our attitude has to be like His. We have to be willing to make ourselves nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, submitting even to death, even it's as bad as death on a cross. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is how he can say any of you that won't give up everything cannot be my disciple. You cannot say you'll be his disciple if you won't give up trivial things. Because you'll never give up your life. But we go the other way. We say, no, no, in that day I would never deny Jesus. Really? You did twice yesterday when people were ugly to you. Twice. Said Jesus would never talk like that. Did you hear what he told Peter? I didn't read it to you. Peter said, I'll follow you. I'll even lay down my life for you. He said, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow, you will have denied me three times. Then he just went on teaching. So confident in our own abilities. So confident that we're right with God. The overwhelming impression that I got this morning during worship is that the Lord was trying to circumcise hearts that had padded themselves with religious thinking overwhelming feeling. In fact, it's changed the whole course of our message. I wonder, I wonder if you'll be receptive to it, or if you'll just go one more day doing what you've always done. I want to tell you, in the end, we're going to give an account, and if you have to give an account for every idle word, what do you think is going to happen with a whole idle day? I do not live under this burden. I really don't. I do not live under a burden that just tells me I'm not good enough. I want to tell you the truth. I feel invigorated 
by the King of Kings. I really do. I feel like I'm his son, and I'm excited to be that way. But that feeling compels me to examine my life and say, where can I go further with you, Jesus? Where can I go a little deeper? Where can I sacrifice a little more? Where can I wade out into the mighty rushing river a little further? I do not want to stand before him and have led a comfortable life while, while others take the gospel place. One, if you haven't read Heavenly Man, go read it. I do not want the Chinese to beat me to the goal of God. Don't want it. I'm excited. I'm inspired by them. I don't begrudge them. Admire them. But I want to live a life that they could admire. I'm not going to read to you Luke 14 because I think I've done it every week for about six weeks. If you're not willing to hate your mother and father, you can't be his disciple. Because his relationship with you must come before your relationship with him. You're not willing to give up everything. If you do not give up everything, you cannot be his disciple. The reason I don't like to put the word willing in there is we all say we're willing until it's required. We all say we're willing until it's required. Lord, I give you anything. I'll do anything for you. Start by cleaning this toilet with a good attitude. You know, I just don't feel called, you know. I've watched it. I've watched it. The same people that cross their arms and tell me there's no ministry opportunity for them in this church are not ministering anywhere else in their lives but want to minister here. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean if you say there's not a ministry opportunity in this church? What, are there not people around you? You don't live next to anybody? You never met a lost person? Oh, I get it. I'm supposed to do this for you. Instead, we'll watch and see what you're already doing and try to support you in it, get excited about it, get behind you, support you, give everything that we can, including our lives for you. But if you're waiting for us to organize your life's ministry for you, you're in the wrong place. In fact, I don't think there is a place for you, although there are some that will take your money. Saints, you were all called by the same Jesus. Get to work. Get to work. Find joy in it. Well, what kind of work do I do? Let's start by whatever would be the most difficult for you. I love when Angus Buckingham got saved, his pastor looked at him and said, the first five people you meet today tell about Jesus. When he saw a man come in the distance, he thought, oh, no, any other one. He turned away. He looked anywhere else he could. He hid from him, tried to pretend he didn't see him, and the guy came and found him. Start with whatever your flesh would like to do the least. He said, but some of it's just not wise. You know what's wise? is to have a reckless abandonment of caution for Jesus. He'll teach you what you need to know. I got arrested the first weekend I was born again, and I do not regret it. Not, not even a little bit. I put 10,000 tracks in Hallmark cards. The little mall rent-a-cop put the little things on my hands. I don't regret it a bit. I wouldn't go do that today. God's more interested in me building relationships with people that witness than just handing them a piece of paper. But I don't regret it because it was a way to crucify my flesh for him. I give you a little hint. It wasn't even so much for everyone else as it was to affirm his lordship in me. Turn with me to Leviticus 24. You had to know I would get there at some point, right?
a little confession to make. When I teach like this, at some point, you know, three quarters of the way through a message, I get this little nervous thing in me. But you know, I didn't really teach anything. You know, I just kind of preached. Makes me feel uncomfortable. So I try to give you a little nugget that you can take away that is a teaching. But let's be honest, you've already heard from God what you need to know right now, haven't you? I mean, you really already have. So let this be what my friends to the east of us call little land. Amen? Leviticus 24, let's start with uh, verse 1. The Lord said to Moshe, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives. Clear oil of pressed olives. Not all oil from olives is clear. There are four pressings of olives. And with each pressing, the oil gets a little less pure, a little less clear. i got to say, one of the strangest marketing attempts that I've ever seen is the words, extra virgin olive oil. What's that mean? They didn't even think about picking them off the tree? I, I, don't, I don't quite understand that. But I want to tell you, in the biblical world, when they took olives and they put a stone on top of a bag full of olives... That was the first pressing. And the oil that came out was clear. When they put a second stone, it was a little less clear because it had a little more flesh in it. When they put a third stone, it had yet even more flesh. By the time there was the fourth stone, it was good for not just a whole lot except starting fires because it had so much flesh in it. The Lord said to Moshe, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning continually. Outside the curtain of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning, continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come. The lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord must be tended continually. How many times can we say continually in, in one paragraph? I'm sure in Hebrew this is not quite so redundant. But you get the impression that he wants a fire lit by pure oil continually. He says it at least three times in four verses, continually. No days off. No bad times. No months just to kind of recover because you're depressed. No retreating to hide from humanity because you just want to be a little self-centered. Tend your lamp continually. Cut away the flesh. Strain it out. Find what God has purely anointed you to do. People misunderstand that because we don't organize for you ministry in here, we don't think that you are qualified to minister. Let me free you from the idea right now. You are all in here called to minister. That's why we put the S on the end of the word. Life-changing ministries. I would have put it as a Y if it was about us. It is about you. So trim your lamp. Fill it with oil. Clear oil. No flesh in it. If your ministry is about making you great, esteemed, considered wise, any of those things, we reject it, and so does Jesus. If it is about clear oil, helping each other, loving each other, seeing the lost saved, we accept it. We support it. And even if you do it differently than we think it should be done, we will not stand against it. Because this is what our lives are about. I heard somebody say that they needed to transition from being a doer to being a teacher. I know what they meant. 
They meant they were so preoccupied with always being the one who moves, they weren't teaching others to do it. I feel a little differently about that, obviously. But at some point, our ministry needs to be about you ministry, not us. Our ministry is already displayed in your lives. <coughs> Whose lives display your ministry? You understand what we're trying to say? I want you to multiply yourselves because I'm proud of you. I want you to not be complacent because the king has work for you to do. Clear oil. I probably don't need to read it. You can write it down. Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 20 says, When you harvest your olive trees, you can beat them. Isn't that nice? You go give them a good old whipping. And whatever falls off of the branches, that's for you to harvest. To get an olive tree to be the most productive, what do you have to do to it? Beat it. Isn't it strange that the Bible calls you an olive tree? Calls your children an olive tree? The Bible even calls the whole plan of salvation in Romans 11 an olive tree. How do you get a harvest out of an olive tree? But I'm sure God wants to show the world his saving power through your blessings. How rich you are, how many jets you have, how many ridiculous, clown-like creatures you listen to. The world gets to see what is in you when you are squeezed. And it needs to be clear Because this is God. And it's what he wants his lamp and his tent of meeting to burn with. It's what he wants it to burn with. He is the actually said that a Christian with a strong personality, like many talents and uh, assertive, is to be feared. Yeah, I wouldn't be real happy to read that. said, because it is likely that there will be flesh in his judgments. It is likely that there will be a little too much of him in his ministry. If we allow the Lord to circumcise our hearts, to make us like him, Away, you will find yourself doing things for him that were never your choice to do. You might even find that the circumstances that surround you all the time are a little uncomfortable for you because it's not what you would have chosen for yourself. And these are the places that he can use you best. Because this is when he gets to come out instead of just you. I want to read you something got a few more minutes, and I think we ought to pursue it just a little bit. This came from Wikipedia. If you haven't heard this quote, it is worth hearing. Olive trees show marked preference for calcareous soils, flourishing best on limestone slopes and crags and coastal climate conditions. They grow in any light soil, even on clay if well drained. But in rich soils, they are predisposed to disease and produce poorer, poorer oil than they would if they were placed in poor soil. Come on, does that not defy reason? Yes. That a tree 
Psalm 52, 8 calls you an olive tree. Later, the Psalms tell us, Psalm 128, that our children are olive trees. I already told you Romans 11 calls the whole plan of God an olive tree. And olive trees do not produce as good a crop in good soil. Isn't that crazy? They like to grow in bad places. What could the message be behind that? Come on, saints. So you're in a bad situation. It might be just where God intended you to bear the greatest harvest. Come on now. If you were going to plant Jesus somewhere, wouldn't you have planted him among the receptive? I mean, because we want to reach the most. Wouldn't you have planted him among the well-funded? Because we want to reach the most. Wouldn't you have planted him among the educated because we want to reach the most? Wouldn't you have planted him among the religious to be the most effective? He was planted among whores and prostitutes so he could see the greatest harvest. Think about your field. Are you seeking better soil, soil or poorer soil? I showed you the Jackie Pullinger video because she went around the world spent all of her money and when she only had a hundred dollars left she found her soil I gave you a Heidi Baker book for Christmas everybody in the church got one and if you attended our church at this time I gave you one because her and her husband spent their life savings traveling around the world to find the poorest soil imagine the fact that they found it and they were broke and they have flourished like an olive tree in the house of God their children are like little olive shoots growing up next to the bigger olive tree. This is Christianity. This is Christianity, not comfort, not ease. In Luke 22, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. In John 18, he said, when he had finished praying, he left his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove. But we're going to go to Matthew 26, where we close today. I hope the most exciting thing I said to you today was not, we're going to close. <laughs> We're going to start in verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All of the Gospels go out of their way to mention the setting in which Jesus said and did the things that he's doing here. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Boy, aren't those easy words to say. 
And we've all made the very same pledge. If your life was recorded in the book of Matthew the way that Peter's is, good, the bad, and the ugly, how many times in a day would it say you denied him? Bad Peter, right? Really? Three might be the lowest bid. And all other disciples said the same. See, it wasn't just Peter. All disciples pledged to give their lives for the gospel. All did. Or you can't be a disciple. This is the call of a disciple. To give your life to Jesus. It's just when he comes to require it of us that it becomes difficult. Not because a gun's to your head. It's probably because a gun is not to your head. Let's be honest. If I pull out the gun and say, Les, I'm going to shoot you right now unless you deny Jesus. Les has been trying to say no. He's been trying to say no. But if I say, Cody, I'd like you to stay behind and pick up all the chairs while we go eat your favorite food at your favorite restaurant. It's the exact same situation. It is the exact same situation. We just don't realize it. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane actually means the place of olive pressings. And there's still an olive grove there today. There are actually the footings of an olive press there. It's something like a giant stone. Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. A little bit like he is being squeezed by all the pressures in life. I didn't read it to you in Luke because I didn't want to waste the time. But he sweat as if it were drops of blood on a great stone where he knelt to pray. Kind of like an olive press. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, he had a choice here. He had a choice to lay down his life or to take it up again. You know what's so wrong with the world religion saying Jesus was simply a prophet? Number one, if he was a prophet, you should believe what the prophet said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. But the other thing that's wrong with just calling him a prophet is, yes, he would have been a prophet, powerful prophet, if he had walked away from here. He had a relationship with the Father. He heard and said and did what the Father said. But he would have been a sinner that at times clung to his own life rather than gave it away if he walked away right here. And he had that choice. And you can see the world would have embraced him. Right? All the cults do. All the cults do. They never have bad things to say about Jesus. But they all deny his bodily resurrection. They deny his sacrificial death on the cross for what it was. I want to ask you, what does your life display? Does it display that Jesus is a wise teacher, that he's a prophet because you like the bumper sticker Christianity? Or does it display that when the chips are down, you lay down your life for him? Or do you protect it? Do you guard it? Do you live a safe life, a blessed life? I think he's calling us to something more. Does it surprise you that three times, he starts off saying, I'm so overwhelmed, then he goes away three times to pray. That one time plus those three is four pressings. Four times. He's explicitly pressed in the place of the olive press. 
This was the last day of his life. The same day that he washed their feet and said, do likewise. The same day that he said, it's Gentiles who want to lord their authority. You need to serve and become a slave. And somehow or another, we miss this. 